Why do you think that there's this boiling point that we seem to be tipping over? I mean, one of the things that comes to my mind is these images of students tearing down the images of people who have been kidnapped by Hamas. And that's something I've tried to look at it. I can't figure out what that comes from. It's just hatred. Just Um, hatred. Yeah, it's just hatred. So, you know, um, every time there's there's some tension between uh, Israel and the Palestinians, uh, there are uh, activists on campus who, you know, mobilize. Um, it's, it's a little puzzling, right? Um, so far, uh, this conflict in, in Gaza, uh, has come at the cost of, you know, maybe 10,000 lives, which is a lot. It's, 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 it's hard to know what the numbers are because Hamas is the only source and Hamas lies. Uh, but you know, let's say around 10,000, uh, which is awful. But meanwhile, there's been a civil war in Syria that's been going on for 15 years with half a million dead and a civil war in Yemen that's been going on for 10 years with 400,000 dead. Like we're talking, you know, 10, 20, 30 times as many people, not a peep on campus, not a word, not a protest on my campus about the war in Ukraine or China's treatment of the Uyghurs or the conflict over Kashmir, like it's, it's one song and one song only, which is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and it just gets people riled up. I, I don't know why that is. Um, I can only tell you, Nick, that if Israel were the only Muslim country in the Middle East, and people were only protesting against what that one Muslim country does, but never protesting against what all the other countries in the region do, I think people would cry Islamophobia. Well, what's fascinating um, is, and which leads me, which leads me to suspect that there's at least a little, a little antisemitism going on here. Um, yeah, the Jewish state is held to different standards, and people cry very loudly who otherwise would would not be bothered uh, to leave their apartments. Well, people are crying Islamophobia, which is what's fascinating. You have the White House coming out and saying, yes, we recognize what's happening, but we need to make sure that Islamophobia is not on the rise and we need to be vigilant against yep. that. Yep. Not I think it's an, attempt to be, it's an attempt to be even-handed. Um, uh, again, a very unusual situation, right? After 9-11, nobody said, well, you know, we really need to see both sides of this. Surely 9-11 happened in a context. Uh, after Pearl Harbor, nobody said, well, you know, you do have to understand the Japanese were in a tough situation. We do have to understand Pearl Harbor in a contest. Um, yeah, I think it's an attempt It's an attempt to be even-handed. And Islamophobia is a problem, uh, not just in the United States, but but worldwide. I'm, I'm hearing people say very unreasonable things, uh, uh, pretending that uh, the outrageous things that Hamas did are in some way representative of Islam. Um, but I also think that uh, pro-Palestinian and pro-Muslim voices missed a very easy opportunity to say the actions of October 7 do not represent us. This is not what it means to struggle for Palestinian liberation. This is not what it means to stand up for Muslim values. Um, and some organizations did that, and some organizations did the opposite. They went all in. They were like, yes. We stand with our martyrs. I hear this on my campus. We applaud and support our martyrs. The rapists, they're talking about the rapists. They're talking about the people who are dismembering children's bodies. We're talking about the people who are pulling unborn infants out of the 
wombs of pregnant women. These are the martyrs whose actions we applaud. That's just nuts. That's nuts. Why do you think they're jumping to this conclusion on campuses and so fast? There wasn't a a beat missed and it was after an act of terrorism, which doesn't seem to be disputed and yet people kind of... The terrorism oh, wasn't even over. The terrorism yeah. was not over. And, uh, and statements, uh, for example, a, a uh, student organization on my campus, while the terrorists were still roaming inside Israel, killing people, they came out with a statement that blamed only Israel and fully supported the genocidal maniacs who did this, the sexual perverts, child molesters, and kidnappers who engaged in this. It's baffling. Um, I think... In part, uh, some of the people who support this are just evil. Um, I think most people who support this are stupid, because those are the two options, right? I mean, you're either evil or you're stupid. Um, uh, and I think, I, I think mostly it's stupid. Uh, these are students and faculty members who don't know much about the Middle East. They don't know, for example, that there are multiple Palestinian movements, and you can support some but not others. They don't know exactly what the borders of Israel are. They think Gaza is still occupied by Israel. Um, they're confused about which Israeli towns are settlements and which Israeli towns aren't. And um, so rather than make a sophisticated stand and say, I support the Palestinian Authority, I don't support Hamas, I object to settlements, but I realize that these attacks were not attacks against settlements, they were attacks against Israeli towns in Israel proper. I understand that when I sing from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I am asking for ethnic cleansing of 8 million Jews. I think most students and faculty members who do these things don't understand and don't know. Um, And so they think that their choice is to either completely support what happened on October 7 or completely reject it. And they go for completely support. That's, that's That's my only explanation. That's what's fascinating is someone who's come from the outside and is trying to get versed on the conflict and dive back into the history of it is there doesn't seem to be any separation of Palestinian people from Hamas on either side. It seems like you have to take them both and lump them together. There is no delineating factor. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that the delineation is easy. Uh, Based on recent surveys I've seen, most people in the Gaza Strip did not support Hamas a month ago. Um, but many, many did, many did, we're talking 40, 45%. And I don't know how strong the support is now. Uh, one would think that support for the organization that, that brought down massive death on Gaza would decline, but maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm not sure. Um, but, but you, you need to know something about the region. I, uh, conducted uh, a couple of surveys about five years ago in which I asked my students how they felt about all sorts of conflicts around the world. These were about 250 um, seniors. So they'd already spent four years at Berkeley. They were taking an advanced international politics class. These were pretty smart kids, very interested in the world. And I asked them about all sorts of conflicts in the world. And as I told you 10 minutes ago, they're not that interested in Kashmir or in Western Sahara, or in Kurdistan, conflicts that are much, much bigger than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They don't care. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the most important conflict in the world. 
It's the only thing that they think about. It matters a ton. And then they flip the page over and I ask them all sorts of questions about the conflict. Like, where is it? When did it start? How many people are involved? And they didn't know squat. In fact, the stronger their opinions, the more vehement they were, the less they knew about the conflict. And I asked them some really easy questions, right? Like where in relation to Lebanon is, are the Palestinian territories? North, south, east, or west? If you've ever opened a map of the Middle East, you know the answer to that question. Uh, 25% of students who said that they cared a lot about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict said the Palestinian territories are west of Lebanon. Now, west of Lebanon is the Mediterranean Sea. You don't have to know that. Look, I don't know a ton about the geography of Southeast Asia or the geography of Central Africa. You can ask me all sorts of questions that I'll get wrong. But then I'm also not standing on a chair screaming my lungs out uh, about, you know, free Uzbekistan. Um, If you're going to scream your lungs out about a conflict and feel very strongly about it and engage in violence, which is increasingly happening on campuses, and tear down posters, you better know what you're standing for. Um, you know, you ask, you ask students, how many, how many uh, people live in Israel? You know, round it down to the next 10 million. Is it 5 million? Is it 10 million? Is it 50 million? Is it 75 million? Students have no clue. Absolutely no clue. The answer is 9 million, by the way. Uh, I got I got answers as low as fifty thousand and and uh, as high as seventy million. Like people just have no idea, but that doesn't stop them from screaming really loudly. The people who knew a little more about the conflict tended to be interested, but more moderately interested. Like they said, this is important. It's not the only important conflict, but it's important. And they, among other things, were comfortable when I asked them a tough question like, you know, what, in what year did Israel uh, conquer the West Bank in Gaza? I, actually, I didn't ask what year it was. I asked what decade, right? Was this in the 1930s? Was it in the 1940s, 50s, or 60s? Um, they were comfortable saying, I don't know. You know, I think this is an important conflict, but I don't know enough about it and I want to learn. Whereas the people who are all out, screaming, uh, you know, spitting as they, as they shout, uh, fist in the air. Well, they can't then say, but actually I don't know where this conflict is or where it started or how many people are involved. I can't name a single Palestinian or Israeli leader. Um, they got to choose an answer because it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, they have to double down at this point. They have to double down. And I think that's what's happening. And it's really hard to double down when the thing you're doubling down on is you know, homicidal lunacy. I mean, that puts you in a really tough spot to say, you know, I think the kidnapping of, of 30 children under age 10 is a, is a really, it's a great anti-colonial uh, symbol. This is like, this is what the struggle against oppression should look like. You're nuts. You're nuts. Che Guevara never kidnapped four-year-old babies. Che Guevara never tortured people. Che Guevara never raped women and paraded them in the streets with blood running down their, their dress. That's, that's what colonial struggle, anti-colonial struggle looks like. This is just butchery. Um, yep. So it's, it's kind of a shame. 
That's why the timing of this is so interesting because do you think most of these, so most of your students or most of the people on campus, do you think they would have felt this strongly about Palestine and Israel, say back in September, or would have been as vehemently on one side or the other, or there would have been a little more room for nuance? Uh, I think there would, well, I'll say two things. First of all, and, and again, I know this from surveys I've done, 99% of the students on my campus don't care at all. They're actually here to take classes and learn stuff, which is great because it's a university, right? So we have a lot of facilities for that. Sure, you can come to a university to protest, but mostly you should be learning and teaching and listening and having conversations and not screaming. Uh, the screamers are less than 1%. So, so just here, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one number. Um, there was a huge national walkout a week and a half ago. Actually, it was, I think, two weeks ago. Um, big national walkout of all students from all classrooms for Palestine and against Israel on the Berkeley campus, which, as you know, is a pretty politically active campus. 400 people showed up. Of those 400, let's say half are students. Uh, the rest are people from the city of Berkeley, um, some, some significantly older. Um, we got 40,000 students on this campus. So let's say all the people who showed up are students. Let's double that number. Let's say you weren't 400 of them. There were 1,000. We got 40,000 students on this campus, right? So, so you know, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a minuscule, it's a minuscule percentage. 1%, 2% of students. Um, yes, I would say that even in that really small group, people became radicalized in the last few weeks. Some are buying into bullshit arguments about, you know, this is a race war, uh, right? This demented idea that Jews are white, which is like, have you talked to it? Maybe you should talk to a Jew once, right? <laughs> like, how, how are Jews, how are the indigenous people of the Middle East, how are they white? In what, by what scale do you think that your strange American vision that divides the world into black and white applies to the Middle East somehow? And that this is a war about race, and not about religion, about land, about water, about refugees, right? So I think some students just fall into that trope. Um, I support Black Lives Matter, so I have to support this. Uh, or some stupid version of intersectionality. I support gay rights, so I must support the Palestinians. Or I support freedom of speech, so I must support the Palestinians, because the Hamas is famous for its pro-gay right pro-religious freedom, pro-free speech, pro-Black Lives Matter agenda, right? Um, it's kind of demented. It's demented. I, I saw a cartoon online uh, recently about, um, you know, it, it, it had sort of an image of uh, uh, LGBT youth protesting for Hamas. And somebody said it was like chickens protesting for KFC. Uh, it's like, you're nuts. You've, you've somehow, you somehow don't understand what the two sides are representing here. Um, so I think it's really driven people to extremes, which in part is what terrorism does uh, and has always done. Terrorism makes it difficult for people to be indifferent and occupy the reasonable center. Terrorism kind of forces you to say, you know, as, as George Bush said after 9-11, you're either with us or you're against us. And in that kind of situation... Sometimes you make the right choice and sometimes you make the wrong choice, right? Um, 
So yes, it has definitely created more conflict. It has, despite my best efforts and the best efforts of the administration, uh, led to acts of vandalism, threats of violence, and violence. Less at Berkeley than elsewhere, uh, but but still, there's there's a there's a good deal of it. Um, we've 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 even we've even seen some violence. Um, and we've seen some students and faculty behave in absolutely outrageous ways that are just like so unprofessional uh, that it's it's really kind of hair raising. There's almost an innate ability to justify any wrongdoing if you believe that the wrongdoing is done by the oppressed to the oppressor. It almost opens this gateway of there's no action that's off limits because these people have a boot on their neck. So yeah, if they go slaughter a few thousand people, it's not really their fault because they're being forced into this situation. Yeah. So, you know, this, this sort of, uh, both, both, uh, the, the, you know, post-colonial theory and critical race theory and in general, so the agenda of the, of the, uh, extreme progressive left, you know, it's more of a religious movement than it is a political movement in the sense that it divides the world into good versus evil and the good can only do good and the evil can only do evil. Um, it prescribes a particular language that you must use and you're not allowed to use any other language. Um, it, uh, it creates sort of associations of, you know, the camp that we support and, uh, the people that we can never talk to. So you can never bridge these differences. There's no room for debate. There's no room for compromise. There's no point in sitting down and discussing and talking things over. Uh, in fact, it's dangerous to listen to people you disagree with. There, there's, and there's, and of course, they are highly conspiratorial, right? Somebody's out to get you. Uh, that person who's out to get you is never there. They're always absent. Uh, that's that's uh, one of the most beautiful features of anti-colonial theory is all evil in the world was committed 150 years ago by people who are no longer alive. And so nobody can ever do anything about it. Nobody can ever fix it or excuse it or build a better future because the people responsible did what they did and now they're gone. Uh, and so it's just going to be like this forever. Um, yeah. Um, and any action can be excused. And in fact, if you, if you read, you know, Fanon's Wretched of the Earth or, or texts that come out of that tradition, not only is extreme violence excusable, it is necessary. It is good. So again, you get sort of a religious apocalyptic notion that the war to end all wars, sort of Armageddon is a good thing. Because even though it'll kill off 99% of humanity, the elect will survive. And so similarly here, violence has a sort of purifying, valorizing effect. Violence is good for you. It washes away your weaknesses. Um, and the sad thing, the sad side here is there's no empathy. There's no dialogue. There are no pro-Palestinian students on my campus. There are only anti-Israeli students. There's not a single student who I've heard say something like, here's what we need to do to help the displaced people inside Gaza. Here's how we can rebuild buildings that have been bombed, hospitals that have been destroyed, schools that have been demolished. Uh, we need to send money. We need to send books. We need to send supplies. We need to ask Congress to, uh, to give even more financial aid 
to the Palestinian Authority than Congress is giving. I, I've heard none of this. I've only heard hatred. Right? It's never I am for something. It's only I, here are the things I'm against. It's never constructive because none of these theories, none of these arguments are constructive. They only identify evil. They never suggest the good that can be done. Um, and that's a shame because uh, pro-Israeli students on campus, on the whole, there are exceptions to this too, but on the whole, are not anti-Palestinian. Um, it's hard to find voices on my campus that do not support a two-state solution, meaning a, a, a Israeli-Palestinian coexistence on the Jewish side. And it's very hard to find these voices on uh, on the Palestinian side, as best as I can tell. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't go to every meeting. I haven't talked to every student. But that's just that's my that's my general impression from the screams that I hear, from the posters that I see. Um, uh, you know, uh, aside from you know the ethnic cleansing slogan, "From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free." The other slogan is, "We don't want two states." We want 48, meaning it's not that we envision a future Palestine in the West Bank and Gaza. We envision a future Palestine everywhere. Israel has to disappear. All 9 million citizens, and those include Jews and Christians and Muslim, because Israel is a multi-ethnic state, right? Those include gay people and straight people, religious people and secular people. They all have to go. They all have to disappear. Uh, that's what that means. We don't want two state. We want forty-eight. So, the people in the middle who envision a future where these two communities can reside side by side, that group is is small. This idea of there needs to not be an Israel so that Palestine can exist. Do you think that comes from a hatred of? Jewish people or our hatred of this idea of Zionism in itself? I have a hard time distinguishing the two, right? Um, because Zionism is the self-determination movement of Jews. Uh, you know, 95% of American Jews are Zionists. Um, it's very hard to study Jewish history and not walk away with the conclusion that Jews have not done well throughout history uh, wherever they've resided, uh, they've done badly in the Western world. They've done even more badly in the Middle East uh, as as sort of second category citizens at best. Um, and they should have a state. And I think the people who oppose Jewish national self determination at the same time support national self determination for everybody else. And nobody said Pakistan can't exist because it was created as a country for Muslims. Uh, and nobody said that, you know, uh, Tibet should not be free because, you know, Tibetan Buddhists feel that they have a, a separate sense of identity from the Chinese who are occupying them. Uh, the whole idea of national self-determination is you get to decide for yourself that you are a nation and that you want to be free and that you want to live on your homeland. And when you say, I support this for everybody except for this one group, uh, it's hard to argue that you're not racist towards that group, right? So to get back to the Islamophobia metaphor, if I said I support self-determination for everybody in the world, except for Muslims, Muslims can't have a country. There can never be a Muslim country, not even one. There are, in reality, well over 50 
but yeah, I, I won't even tolerate one. Not even one can exist. Um, then I think you're Islamophobic. Uh, and I think when you say that about Jews, I think you're anti-Semitic. So, I, so in my mind, while anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are not the same thing, they are two sides of the same coin. Uh, a little like uh, racism and xenophobia. They're not the same thing, right? One is hatred of race and the other is hatred of strangers. But it's really hard to find racists who are not xenophobic and it's really hard to find xenophobes who are not racists. And it's really hard to find anti-Zionists who don't hate Jews. And it's really hard to find Jew haters uh, who are not anti-Zionists. They exist because they're, you know, not, not everybody in the world is logical. Uh, they exist, sure. You also find, you know, African American Trump voters. Uh, it, it's, but it's hard to find them. Uh, you have to look hard. Um, so, so I think the the animus against Israel is in part hatred of Jews. Jews should not be safe anywhere. And if Jews are attacked, good. As long as they don't defend themselves, and they certainly can't attack back. Jews should not be holding guns. Jews are allowed to play the piano. Jews are allowed to be stand-up comedians. Jews can be physics professors or Broadway producers, but Jews are not allowed to hold guns. Uh, the Americans killed, um, I should say, the American invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan killed hundreds and thousands of people in the Middle East. But God help me if Jews kill 10,000 people. Because they're Jews. They shouldn't be killing anybody, right? Um, so I think in, in large part, it's anti-Jewish animus. Uh, in large part, it's jealousy of the success that Israel has become. Because if every colonized country in the world must forever be a victim, then surely Israel and surrounding territories must forever be victims. And how can it be that this one country has a flourishing economy, has taken in more refugees per capita than any other country in the world, is a democracy with freedom of religion and freedom of press uh, that innovates and produces uh, and in which people are happier than in just about any other country in the Middle East. How can that be? Well, it's got to be because they're somehow evil or there's an international cabal that supports them or they wouldn't have done anything, any of this without the United States. Um, so I think, I think jealousy is part of it. But again, as I said before, uh, this is probably a Mark Twain quote, but all good quotes are Mark Twain quotes. Uh, you know, never explain with evil what you can explain with stupidity. I, I think in part it's just people don't know anything about the Middle East. They don't know anything about Israel. They don't know anything about the Palestinian territories. Um, um, and so they just, they just stupidly pick a side. Uh, just as, you know, you ask them to pick a side between China and Taiwan, and they're like, yeah, I, I guess I'm going to go with Taiwan on this one. I don't, I don't know. I've never been there. Um, yeah, similarly, you know, people are screaming genocide right now don't understand what genocide is. And, and so you've you got to teach them. Here's what a genocide is. Here's the kind of numbers we're talking about. Here's the intent that's involved. Um, 10,000 people does not make a genocide. 100,000 people does not make a genocide. Um, you know, but, but that requires knowing history. Do you think any of the, of the anger towards Israel stems not necessarily from Israel being a state, but from how the state came to be with the Balfour Declaration and this kind of plan to at least initially kind of push 
push the Palestinian people out peacefully in a way? So that was not the plan. Uh, um, I, I, it would be uh, awesome if people study the Balfour Declaration carefully. Um, it's a sort of promissory note, informal. It's an informal letter sent by the British uh, foreign minister for all intents and purposes to uh, Lord Rothschild in England. Uh, and the letter is really very careful. Uh, it does not promise a Jewish state. It promises a Jewish homeland. A Jewish right? home in the Holy Land. Not all of it, but in it, on the condition that others living there be not be adversely affected. Uh, so first of all, the letter is quite cautious and quite responsible. And second of all, the British never kept their Balfour promise. Because what they did in the following 20 years was to put every obstacle possible in the path of the creation of such a state. So that most of the Jews who managed to emigrate into what would then become Israel had to do so illegally and against the wish of the British. So that three different Jewish insurgency slash terror organizations had to rise in order to kick out the British. Uh, and the British left with their noses bleeding. Uh, the British did not support the creation of the state of Israel in any way, shape, or form. Not financial, not material, not legal, not organizational. They did nothing but fuck it up, pardon my French. Um, the United Nations was somewhat more helpful, and it did pass a binding resolution, uh, which was the 1947 Partition Resolution. Uh, which split up the territory of the British mandate into two states of similar size, one for the Palestinians and one for the Israelis. Had the Palestinians not rejected that solution, we wouldn't be in the place we are today. But in a moment of uh, perhaps pride, perhaps outrage, um, and due to a persistent refusal by Palestinians to this day to recognize Jews as just as indigenous, if not more indigenous, uh, in the Holy Land, they rejected the partition resolution. And not only did they reject the partition resolution, but they declared war on the Jews, as did seven other neighboring Arab countries. And that led to the War of 1948, which, tragically, the Palestinians lost. Had they won it, we would not be where we are today. They would have wiped out the Jewish community and there would be a Palestinian state. But they lost it. They lost a war that they launched. Um, so the creation of Israel is really not the product of the Balfour Declaration. It happened despite the Balfour Declaration. Um, it is in part the product of this United Nations vote in 1947. By the way, a very strange vote. The United Nations rarely creates countries. The United Nations rarely grants legitimacy to the creation of a new country. Israel is one of the few countries in human history that was created by consensus of the international community, where all countries sit around a big table and they, you know, who's in favor of a state for the Jews and a state for the Palestinians? And the majority of the international community, and it was not a slim majority, it was a big majority, um, agrees to this. And the Palestinians say, no, actually, we'd rather duke it out. We think we can. We think we can annihilate the Jews. And they were wrong not once, but they were wrong several times in a row. Uh, and I think this creates an anger and resentment that lasts to this day. 
underpinning it, and we see this on campuses today, is a refusal to acknowledge that this plot of land, like every other plot of land on earth, has more than one indigenous group living on it. Again, sort of a, a dumbed down notion of indigenous studies, as if uh, there's only one group living in every corner of the earth, and that group has been there forever, and no other group was ever there, uh, and they are the indigenous people. And, and so obviously, Palestine must only have one indigenous people. It can't be that there were Canaanites there. It can't be that there were Bedouins there. It can't be that there were pre-Arab people and post-Arab people. No, the Palestinians were there from the moment God created the world. And the Jews must have just come out of the sky. Like, where, where the hell did they come from? Well, if Jews are white, they must have come from Europe. So I, I bet all the Jews are from Poland. Uh, that, must, that must be the argument. Um, uh, I, I read an interesting counter-argument. I think now people are sort of slowly waking up to the, to the bullshit behind these, behind these theories. Um, I, I read an interesting point that someone made about sort of settler colonialism in the United States, that you know, when, when, when the colonizers arrived on the east shore of the United States and started digging in the ground, uh, they didn't find a lot of stuff written in English. Why? Because they were the first English-speaking people who arrived there. They're colonizers. When the Jews returned to their homeland and started digging in the ground, they could read everything they found in the ground. It's written in Hebrew by Jews who've lived there for the last 3,000 years. Uh, they haven't lived there alone. Jews are the indigenous people of the Holy Land. That's why they're called Jews, by the way. Right? They're called Jews because they're from Judea. Uh, but they're not the only indigenous people of the Holy Land. Many of those indigenous people have since been decimated. Um, the Palestinians claim descent from some other indigenous groups of the Holy Land. I appreciate and recognize and honor that claim. I don't understand why they can't do the same. I, I, that's just deeply puzzling to me. Why can't we agree that both Indians and Pakistanis have a right to live in peace side by side? Why can't we agree that both Tibetans and Chinese have a right to live peacefully side by side? Why do I have to choose between the Kurds and the Turks, or between the Turks and the Greeks, or between the Western uh, uh, the Sahwaris that would live in the indigenous people of Western Sahara and the Moroccans? Why does the land have to belong only to one side and not to the other? But when you subscribe to a very dumb version of settler colonialism, um, everybody has to be either a colonizer or a colonized. Um, and some cases are kind of complicated. Like here's a, here's a national group, an indigenous group that was expelled and then returned. You could, if you were a settler colonial theorist, celebrate this as one of the greatest miracles of human history. Imagine if Native Americans could return to some of the territories they were expelled from and become sovereign. I mean, it would, be, it would be a marvel. And you wouldn't say about them, oh, they returned to territory that is no longer theirs. They must be settlers. They must be white. Um, but, but if you subscribe to the dumb version, then you get, you get a dumb answer. That's what's so interesting about this, the whole land back movement and the idea of who is indigenous and who is not is how far back do we go? Is it the most recent group that the land was colonized from? Do we give, because that's a big movement here in the States is 
this idea that we need to give land back to the Native Americans. But which group? The group that we conquered it from? The group that the Native Americans conquered from other Native Americans? How far back? And sometimes that's a problem here. And sometimes that's a problem here. And sometimes it isn't because we often don't have records going back very far, archaeological records. And so there's only one group of survivors. And I, I respect their claim to the land, right? Even if they are not the first indigenous group, they are an indigenous group, uh, and they have some right to the land. Uh, the Middle East is more complicated because the history, by which I mean the written history, of the Middle East goes back 3,000 years. We have a 3,000-year-old historical record of you know, Alamites and Babylonians and Assyrians and ancient Egyptians and uh, Hebrews and early Muslims and later Muslims and Ottomans and, you know, uh, generations of Christians uh, who've all left a historical record. Some of these groups have been decimated. Many are still around. Uh, so the Samaritans, who are a proto-Jewish group and live in the West Bank, um, have survived. Those are the same Samaritans from, uh, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan 2,000 years ago. Uh, they consider themselves to be a Jewish group. Most traditional Jews consider them to be a very early offshoot of Judaism. Um, but they have survived and they have an indigenous claim that is separate from the modern Jewish claim and is separate from the modern Palestinian claim. They are a separate people. Uh, how can that be? Now we have three indigenous people on the same piece of land. Well, that's complicated. I better pick a winner. I don't think you need to pick a winner. Uh, I don't think you need to pick a winner. And this is an important point because the Israelis and the Palestinians themselves have already decided what the final outcome will look like. When you look at surveys conducted not here in the United States, but by people on the ground who actually have to live with one another, they've embraced the notion of coexistence. The overwhelming majority support two states side by side. A tiny extremist minority thinks that one group should rule over the other in some way. Um, but rather than support that coexistence, radicals here in the United States throw their weight in with one side or the other. And I think that's super not constructive. This idea that I've come across a number of times now is that if Israelis put down their weapons, there would be peace. Or if, um, excuse me, if Palestinians put down their weapons, there would be peace. If Israelis put down their weapons, there would be no Israel. And I've heard of a different variation on this. If, if you ask people, could they undo the events of November 7? October 7. October 7. October 7th. Yeah, we're in November. Um, in fact, yesterday was, was the one month anniversary. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, if you asked, you know, could we undo the events of October 7? Um, uh, I think 100% of American Jews would say, yes, please. Um, and I don't want to put words in the, in, in the mouth of, the, of, of uh, American Muslims and American Palestinians, uh, uh, but I can see that many non-Muslim, non-Palestinians who are screaming against Israel right now would not so quickly want to undo the events of October 7 and might feel that Israel was taught an important lesson. They might feel that crisis and emergency and violence 
is preferable to sort of stumbling on in in uh, 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 unsuccessful coexistence. Um, everything is better than the status quo. Um, and that's in part because I don't think people quite understand what happened on October 7. Um, again, they, people, people who want to support the Palestinian cause or people who want to support peace in the Middle East have so many better options available to them. Why only scream at one side? Why not call for the release of uh, kidnapping victims? Uh, why not call for the expulsion of Hamas? Uh, why not uh, call for um, uh, a, a, a mutual ceasefire rather than just demand that one side, the victim who is currently pursuing the aggressor, um, demand that that side surrender unilaterally? Surrender to whom? How can you surrender at this moment? How can you allow an organization like that to continue to exist? Um, but, but rather than propose a constructive compromise, um, you find people taking the most extreme stance possible as if they'd want the conflict to continue. It's really hard to look at that and not suspect that they secretly want more fatalities, more violence, uh, including two weeks ago when the Israeli government insisted that civilians vacate northern Gaza which is a very, very difficult demand and a very painful demand um, because people from northern Gaza have nowhere to go in southern Gaza. They don't have second apartments. They all moved, those who moved, moved into tent cities. Many who had nowhere to go in southern Gaza stayed behind. But how do you evacuate the sick, the elderly? So it's a very, very painful, cruel demand that the Israelis made. But what's the alternative? To conduct a counterinsurgency while you're surrounded by one million Palestinian civilians? So I understand why people mobilized against this evacuation order, but none of them proposed any alternatives. Almost as if they wanted the fight between Israel and Hamas to happen in the midst of the most crowded place in the world. So what did you think was going to happen if these people don't evacuate? You think Israel's just going to not fight? Do you think Israel's just going to surrender unilaterally? Do you think the kidnapping victims are just like, we're going to forget about them? Um, we're just going to wait for Hamas to keep its promise and attack again and again and again and again? That's, you know, that's a positive outcome? So Hamas was putting barriers in the path of these one million people who were trying to evacuate, blowing up bridges, attacking their own citizens as they were trying to move. and pro-Palestinian supporters in the U.S., instead of calling that out, uh, were opposing this relocation. Because you want to see even more Palestinian dead? I don't understand the logic. Surely you must offer some constructive alternative. Um, so the fighting is going to continue with U.S. support, with European support. Uh, the battle lines that have been drawn are quite clear. And you are you choose. worried about that at all? About it seems like there's this escalation and the sides are taking place. Where you have Iran seeming like they're the Arab countries in that area do not seem like they are on board with what is happening in Gaza, and then you have these European powers stepping into back Israel. Does that worry you at all about an escalation? I'm not worried about the Arab countries. It's clear that the Arab leaderships, 
this came clearly out of the Blinken meeting, that Arab leaders are in a tough position because they've indoctrinated their own populations for the last 75 years to hate everything Israel-related. But the leaders themselves have signed peace agreements with Israel or are about to sign peace agreements with Israel. And no leader in their right mind wants Hamas to continue flourishing in the region. Recall that Hamas is just one branch of, an, of a pan-Arab organization called the Muslim Brotherhood, which uh, took control of Egypt during the Arab Spring, uh, which threatened to take control of Syria uh, 40 years ago before the Syrian government decimated them, and which continued to pose a threat to Saudi Arabia, to every other country. So Arab leaders know what needs to be done. European leaders know what needs to be done. Um, the Russians and the Chinese back Hamas, which of course means the Ukrainians back Israel. Um, so there's your choice, right? Like, who are you, you going to support in this war? You're going to take the same side as the Russians and the Chinese? Seems a little weird to me if you are a progressive person who's advocating for human rights, for women's rights, for gay rights, for freedom of religion, for freedom of speech, and, and you're siding with those guys against these guys? That seems like a strange choice. Uh, is, it, is it not odd to you that your justifiably heroic President Zelensky of Ukraine is 100% in with the Israelis? Like, what is he seeing that you're not understanding? Why did the President of the United States put his own life at risk to visit Israel? And then the President of France, and then the Chancellor of Germany, and then the Prime Minister of England. Um, are these people all crazy? Is there something they're understanding that you're not seeing? That all of the world's democracies, all of the world's liberal regimes are lining up on one side of these, and all the autocrats, all the mass killers are lining up on the other side of this, and you're siding with the rapists and with these guys? It's a little weird. It's a little weird. Because, because to just to go back to something we said half an hour ago, there is option three. You could just be in the middle. Yeah, not a you, lot of people are following option three right now. You could be in the middle. Or, you know, if until now you, you had advocated for Hamas because you didn't quite understand who Hamas was and you'd, uh, you know, blamed Israel of being the only culpable party because you hadn't really watched the Middle East very closely. Option three is you could just be quiet for a little while. Just like, you know, shush. Just like sit in the corner and rethink rather than standing in the public square and doubling down on a losing bet. Um, the one perhaps positive outcome of all this is that a lot of organizations that reasonable people supported, even though the organizations themselves were not reasonable, um, those organizations have now been unmasked. And we now know better, right? So Jewish Voice for Peace, which is neither Jewish nor pro-peace, uh, some people thought, you know, maybe this is just a pro-Palestinian organization that is, you know, very virulently anti-Israeli and anti-Semitic, but their heart's in the right place. Well, we now know. Their heart is not in the right place. They're not a pro-Palestinian organization, because if they had been, they would have said something about Hamas, about authoritarian rule in Gaza, about 
using Palestinians as human shields, about kidnapping Holocaust survivors, the disabled, 85-year-olds and four-year-olds. They've said none of that. They've only doubled down on their anti-Israel hatred. So now we know who they are. And I think that's good. Um, One reason why I've always been a big proponent of free speech is I want to know who the bastards are. I want to know who the racists are. Now we know. We see them. We see them loud and clear. We see who the allies are, and we see who the allies aren't. We see who's just pretended to support the Palestinians because they hate Jews, and who really supports the Palestinians. Um, Yeah. So it's provided us, I think it's provided a sense of moral clarity. Well, if you're ignorant on an issue and you instantly take a side, it's, if you double down, it becomes apparent that something's not quite right. Regardless yeah, it, of how you feel, if, if you're yeah. presented with changing information and you can't adapt to that, it's, that's a hard road to walk. Yeah. It becomes very, very clear that you know very little, um, right? I mean, if you're going to shout from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free and you can't name the river. Red flag. Uh, right? That's, that's, a, that's a problem, right? If you're going to call for ethnic cleansing, at least you need to know who you're cleansing and from what. Um, I have a thing against genocide, but you know, not everybody does. Uh, so if you're going to call for genocide, at least you need to know who you're genociding. Um, but they can't name the river and they can't name the sea. They have no clue what they're talking about. Uh, yeah, they should, they should get out of the public space and go back into the classroom. Uh, Are you worried about it. that the bombing campaign and the war on Gaza and as the civilian death toll rises, are you worried that that's going to give more fuel to the fire against Israel? Um, I think it will um, because I don't think the United States or Israel or any of its allies uh, will be somehow dissuaded from eliminating Hamas. Hamas needs to go. Uh, this, this event was sort of Hamas's 9-11. Uh, and just as 9-11 led to a massive war with massive civilian fatalities, 10 times what we're seeing in Gaza today, uh, but it also ended Al-Qaeda. And similarly, this will end Hamas. Hamas cannot survive this. Uh, Because if Hamas survives this, then no government in the Middle East is safe from terrorism. Um, and, uh, and, And the notion that you can deter uh, an extremist regime like Syria or Iran or uh, you know the Houthis in Yemen, uh, you just got to give that up, right? Because um, because only one side is held accountable, and it's the wrong side. So um, yes, I think anti-Israeli voices are going to grow and grow, and the closer Israel comes to success, the more panicked Hamas supporters will be to try to save Hamas. Um, because Hamas is the primary vanguard against Israel. Um, and I think uh, the United States and Israel and its allies, I think they will hold the course. They also have to then implement a smart Gaza strategy after the war. Well, that's, hasn't and it that, come I, that forward, is, that's something I'm really worried about. Hasn't it come forward that Israel will take over security for Gaza? Haven't they said that? That post-war they're going to Netanyahu alluded that Israel will ha- play some role in securing Gaza, because as you and I'm hoping many of your of your listeners know, Israel left Gaza completely in 2005. Uh, everything, it had settlements that it abandoned. It had uh, 
military troops that it took out. It unearthed cemeteries. It demolished synagogues. Uh, Jews had lived in Gaza for the last 3,000 years, and Israel vacated Gaza 100%. Um, and, and some are now thinking that that might have been a mistake because vacating Gaza turned it into a Hamas nest. In the West Bank, where Israel shares some of the security responsibilities with the Palestinian Authority, uh, there is peace and order. There is not yet a free Palestinian state. I hope that happens one day, but that has not happened yet. But the West Bank has not become a terror base against Israel. So, so I think perhaps people in Israel are envisioning uh, that the Palestinian Authority, which used to rule over Gaza, can retake Gaza and that it can ensure the security and safety of both the people of Gaza and the people of Israel by means of some security cooperation. In the West Bank, Palestinian police and Israeli soldiers patrol together. They guard entrances and exits together. They coordinate in undermining Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, and, and all these ISIS and the other organizations. So it's clear that Gaza cannot return to absolute Hamas rule. It's clear that uh, the West Bank can't return to absolute Palestinian Authority rule because Hamas kicked out the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority is not strong enough to survive in Gaza by itself. So somebody has to support the Palestinian Authority. That will either be Egypt or Saudi Arabia or the United States if they're willing to take on the task. If I were them, I would say no, because <laughs> it's a headache. Or it'll have to be some sort of Israeli cooperation, the way one sees in Area B in the West Bank. I don't know if that terminology is, is familiar, but the West Bank now is divided into areas ruled entirely by the Palestinian Authority. Those are the big cities. That's Area A. Area B is areas of combined Israeli-Palestinian control, and Area C's are area of exclusive Israeli control. And so maybe there's an Area B vision for Gaza. Um, something has to change. Uh, Hamas has now attacked Israel out of Gaza on three different occasions. This is war number three. Uh, 7,000 rockets have come down on Israel in the last month since this began. That's an unsustainable status quo. No, no country would live with that kind of a neighbor. So... Um, once Israel dismantles Hamas, uh, parties will have to think really hard about what comes next. Do you think that dismantling is possible through this approach, though? Because one of the counters that I've heard is that a lot of the Hamas leadership isn't actually even in Gaza. They're in Qatar, in these other countries, and these are more mid-level grunts that are in Gaza carrying out the attack. So that's right. So the political, the highest echelon of the political leadership is in mainly in Qatar and in some other unfriendly countries. Occasionally you'll find them in Syria, in Iran, you know, the usual suspects, uh, or in Russia. Um, and that leadership has to be disempowered. And there are ways to do that. Uh, most terrorist organizations in history have had leadership if the leadership is smart, the leadership has resided separately from the, the, the military wing. Um, and there are ways to weaken that uh, and dissuade them to go, some, go somewhere else and do something else uh, or else suffer the consequences. Um, I wouldn't say it's just grunts in Gaza. It's the generals and everything below, right? It's the entire military structure of Hamas 
uh, is in Gaza. Uh, they uh, were only able to launch this operation, which you'll remember included gliders and uh, and boats and all-terrain vehicles and drones and rockets. That requires infrastructure. That infrastructure is currently being dismantled, including hundreds of kilometers of underground tunnels, communication centers, command and control centers, training grounds, rocket facilities. Those are being taken apart one by one by one. Anybody who's in the rank of general and below is either being arrested by Israeli forces or is being eliminated. Um, Most terrorist organizations in history have A, not accomplished their goals, and B, have not survived. So I think we, we have this notion that uh, you know terrorism is an idea that can't be uh, eliminated. You know the red brigade red brigades from the 1960s 1970s are gone. The Bader Meinhof gang is gone. Those who've lived in Berkeley for many years remember the Weather Underground. It's gone. The IRA is no longer the IRA. It's gone. Um, most terrorist organizations in history have not survived beyond the 30, 40 year mark. Um, there are ways of exiling the Hamas leadership, the way the PLO was exiled from Lebanon in the 1980s and became from a terrorist organization. It turned into a political organization that now rules over the West Bank. So, so perhaps there is a way to convince the Hamas leadership that if they want to rule, first of all, you got to stop with the kidnapping, dismembering, raping, because Nobody in the international community wants to deal with an organization that does these kinds of things, right? At some, when the day ends, you want to be able to shake Fidel Castro's hand. Um, and so, and so there, 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 are, there are things that, that, that are simply uh, unpalatable for, for the international community. Uh, and you've got to somehow transition to political rule. You have to become a member in good standing of the international community. And then we might give you a government office and we might give you a piece of territory. But until then, you might have to live somewhere in exile. I don't know, Afghanistan or um, uh, Algeria or, or, you know, a, a lot of former uh, uh, genocidiers go to the south of France and get a villa there uh, and, are, and are forgotten by time. So, so maybe that's the solution, that the Hamas leadership is just pushed to the margins of, of, of history. Uh, there is no way that any Palestinian or any Israeli want to go back to the status quo of October 6, 2023, which you'll remember was a condition of ceasefire, right? The people who are calling for ceasefire now need to remember that there was a ceasefire on October 6. We've been there before. We know what ceasefire looks like. Uh, and that's, that's not going to happen. For people that don't know, what were the conditions in the months leading up? Because one of the things that you constantly hear is that Gaza was essentially this open air prison and that they were being, they essentially had this blockade around them and they couldn't move and they weren't, they had all of these restrictions and they were living under the people of Israel. Uh, And And on top of that, you also had this theme that there were these settlers that were encroaching further on Palestinian land. Right. So, so life in the Gaza Strip was, was tough. Uh, tough in part because Hamas was ruling there. And Hamas's first act when it gained control over the Gaza Strip and butchered uh, members of the Palestinian Authority 
and essentially a violent coup. Um, one of the first things they did before they closed down movie theaters and kicked women out of school um, was to declare war on Egypt and Israel. And so, yeah, of course, the borders between Gaza and Egypt and the borders between Gaza and Israel are closed because, you know, Gaza declared war on those two countries. That made life in Gaza very, very hard. Not more hard necessarily than life in Syria or life in Jordan or life in Lebanon, but it made life, it made life very, very hard. Uh, at the same time, uh, there was no shortage of food, water, electricity. There were work permits for Gazans who, by the tens of thousands, went, came into Israel to work every day and returned uh, in the evening. Um, yes, a difficult situation. No settlers in Gaza. Those had all been pulled out in 2005, overnight, essentially. Uh, but also no... Um, no solution to the occupation of the West Bank. People in the West Bank were living much better lives because they were not ruled by Hamas. They were ruled by the, and are ruled by the Palestinian Authority. Uh, so there, the economy flourished. Um, very little violence. Um, but no movement towards a Palestinian state. So I would say uh, a state of economic and physical well-being relatively speaking again we're in the middle east right this is not like uh you know the west village in manhattan but but uh uh you know relative prosperity but political oppression the palestinians did not get what they had been promised in the oslo accords which was an independent palestinian state of course they didn't get it because when israel pulled out of gaza and granted an independent gaza to the palestinians Gaza became a source of, of terror and, and war against Israel. So, so, of course, the Israelis became increasingly hesitant to cede land to the Palestinians. All that said, uh, there was a peaceful, let's call it a cold war, between Hamas and Israel that has now lasted for 15 years. Hamas occasionally goes into Israel, kills a couple of soldiers, or kidnaps them. Israel drops bombs on Hamas headquarters. Hamas fires rockets. It escalates, escalates, and then it de-escalates, and prisoners are exchanged. And that's happened a couple of times now. Uh, heavy fatalities every time it happens, but in the hundreds. Nothing like this, where thousands of Israelis are butchered, Hundreds of Israelis and foreign citizens, uh, including Muslims, Christians, Jews, Druze, Bedouin, are kidnapped uh, into Gaza. Not a single one of them has seen a member of the Red Cross in the last month. Uh, no Israeli campaign against Gaza of the scale that we've seen in the last week and a half, two weeks. So this is a new relationship. This is a new page in the relationship between Hamas and Israel. The Israelis foolishly thought that the Hamas organization was rational, that it could be pacified by means of political power, funding, and the supply of goods, right? If only we send food into Gaza, we send medicine into Gaza, we send electricity, we provide jobs, even though you've declared war on us, mind you, we're going to keep doing all these things, and in return, you will continue to hate us, and you will continue to harass us, but you will do it within sort of a set limit, right? You'll try not to kill more than 100 Israelis a year. 
Um, and instead of abiding by these rules, Hamas secretly plotted one of the most daring, extraordinary, and demented terrorist attacks in human history. Um, I, I've studied terrorism, and I've studied the terrorism of religious radicals for for 30 years now, and I've never seen I've never seen anything like this. Um, and, and in fact, when, when I first heard reports of what Hamas had done to the Israeli villages and towns around Gaza, I assumed that these were local Hamas extremists who had uh, just gone bananas. They, they must have just lost it. Uh, this certainly could not be something that Hamas commanders had encouraged or requested. Because why would you request rape? Why would you order your soldiers on the ground to kidnap three-year-old babies? What could you possibly hope to gain other than to signal that you are a lunatic? Uh, now evidence is surfacing increasingly that this was all intentional, that every little bit of it was planned. Well, I believe they trained for two years in Gaza, didn't they? Well, not just event? that they trained, but also that the, the rape and the dismemberment and the burning of bodies and the torture and the abduction of non-Israelis, that all this was part of a, of a very, very careful plan that was caught on video, that is accompanied by written instructions. Uh, this isn't a terror organization that lost its bearing. This was the terror organization's goal. And if we'd only read the Hamas Charter carefully, and any one of your listeners can just go on Google and type in Hamas Charter, and they will read very simply, black on white, the goal of Hamas is not a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. The goal of Hamas, just like the goal of the students who are screaming on my campus, is the elimination of Jews completely. All of them need to go. Everybody who doesn't convert will lose their head, one by one. It is an Islamist, fundamentalist movement. It is a movement of hatred. It's not Muslim. It's Islamist, meaning it is the most extreme, virulent form, um, and it's a minority form that seeks to impose Islam as a political, legal set of laws and institutions in which no non-Muslim may reside. And Hamas wasn't lying about this. They spoke about this openly. How did Israel not see any of this coming? That is a question that people will ask themselves for many years to come. Heads will roll. Uh, most of the military echelon and most of the intelligence echelon in Israel has already declared that they will resign as soon as this war is over. It's a massive failure. Um, some of it is naivete. The belief that Terrorists surely want to negotiate. And in fact, they did negotiate. Hamas famously kidnapped about uh, half a decade ago. Uh, they kidnapped an Israeli soldier. His name was Gilad Shalit. They held him in some Hamas torture chamber for, for several years. Obviously, no access to the Red Cross. None of that stuff. Um, and then exchanged him in return for a thousand Palestinian terrorists. Uh, which Israel did grudgingly. But I guess the Israelis said, hey, if you value each of your terrorists as being worth a thousandth of an Israeli soldier, who are we to argue with you? We'll make the deal. 
Uh, and so the idea again was, yeah, you might kidnap some Israelis in the future, but surely you will safeguard them. You will treat them with care because you want something in return. Um, and you're, you're open to negotiations. You might be crazy, but you're open for to negotiations. And in this case, they were just crazy. So I think that comes as a big surprise to Israelis. And in parallel, supporters of Israel in the United States were equally surprised. They thought that the anti-Israeli voices they were hearing were liberal, progressive, pro-Palestinian. And it turns out that they were just anti-Jewish. Right? A pro-Palestinian does not tear down the poster of a kidnapped American, Filipino, Polish person. Child. Of, of a kidnapped child, of a kidnapped um, you know, foreign, foreign worker who's come to Israel to pick strawberries. Why would you do that? What message are you sending other than, you know, I deny, either I deny this happened or I deny that this person's life has value. Um, you know, if you put up posters or, or names or images of Palestinians who've been killed in the last month in Israeli attacks, would a Jew tear them down? Why? Why would they do that? I mean, the, the person is, is a fatality in a, in a war and every fatality is regretful. So the people tearing these posters down are not doing anything for Palestine. They're just hating. It's just hateful. And I think, I think that's hit people really hard. Like, why can't you march through the streets and shout um, free Palestine without also shouting, we don't want two states, we want 48. Why do you have to shout both? Uh, why, why do you have to cheer when, when Jewish girls are being raped? Uh, why can't you denounce that and denounce the deaths of Palestinians in hospitals, the Palestinians in schools, the Palestinians who are trying to get away from this war and can't. Um, I don't get it. I think a lot of that surprise stems from the fact that it's coming from the left, too. Who is this group that supposedly is pro-peace and pro-freedom and understanding, and then that just completely yep. went out to the wayside. The group, that, the group that castigated everyone in American society for microaggressions. All of the horrors that Russia did. Yeah, but but you know microaggressions are a big deal. But macroaggressions you can get away with, uh, and and this is the group that rightfully said, we we don't ask rape victims to justify what happened to them. It's it's just unacceptable. Period. Uh, now it turns out that it's it's acceptable if the victim is Jewish, uh, that rape can have a, a context in which it needs to be understood and mitigating circumstances that one has to take into account. Um, so, you know, the extreme left, just like the extreme right, turns out to just be a bunch of hypocrites. And I'm, I'm really happy that that is exposed. Uh, you said that you opposed all forms of racism. Where is your opposition to antisemitism? You said that you believe in the dignity of civilians and victims. Where is your outcry over this? Nothing. Nothing. Not a word. Uh, I think... A lot of liberals who slipped into that progressive camp are now moving away out of that progressive camp. You saw exactly a week ago the most amazing bipartisan vote in the uh, House of Representatives that one could have ever imagined because right now, <laughs> American politics is ex as polarized as it's been since the Civil War. 
And yet 98% of the House of Representatives, Democrats and Republicans, in their first vote together, when they finally found a speaker, first vote together was a very extreme anti-Hamas pro-Israel vote. So, so 98% of America is speaking with one voice here. Uh, and you saw that also in the, in the condemnation against uh, um, uh, Rashida Tlaib's uh, anti-Semitic outcries. Um, you know, censorship from Democrats and Republicans. Um, but on, at the extremes of left and right, and, you know, I always imagine left and right as being sort of in a circle, right? You go far enough to the right, you pop out on the left and vice versa. You find bigots. And those bigots were in disguise until recently. But now we see their real face. And so we got we to gotta stay away from them and maybe move a little to the realm to the realm of reason. Uh, we don't have a lot of choice in this country because we have a two-party system. Uh, Israel has a 25-party system. So, you know, everybody can vote for exactly the candidate that sort of fits their, fits their needs. But in the United States, your choices are between, right now it seems, between Trump and Biden. So if you're a, a radical pro-Palestinian and you feel that Biden's efforts to eliminate Hamas are not pro-Palestinian because Hamas is good for Palestinians? I, I don't understand, but okay. Let's just say you, you, you somehow interpret Biden's anti-Hamas stance as also being anti-Palestinian while claiming at the same time that Hamas does not represent Palestinians. Then um, what are you going to do? Vote for Trump? Knock yourself out. Go vote for Trump. And if, you, if you think that that's going to fulfill your agenda better, but 98% of your representatives are on the right side of history here. So if we're willing to acknowledge that Hamas is willing to be crazy or at least act in a crazy way, but they also have the potential to carry out a very detailed and well-planned plan, why do it? Why, why carry out October 7th? You know that Israel is going to retaliate. You know that it's going to result in bombings in Gaza, but maybe you don't care about the Palestinian people. You just care about the organization. What is the, if you're going to try to put yourself on the other side for a second, what's the reasoning behind carrying out that act? Very hard to figure out. And, and it may be years before we really know what the thinking was. So I'm going to throw out a couple of options. My students hate, hate it when I do that because I'm like, I never give them a straight answer. So it's like on the one hand, on the other hand. Um, so... Option number one is that Hamas command in Qatar envisioned a very narrow, simple exercise, and its foot soldiers went ballistic. Now, every organization has a hard time controlling from the top all the way down to the bottom, right? Every, every hierarchy you've ever worked in, I mean, you know, even Microsoft, right? Bill Gates has some idea. He conveys that idea to the heads of his units who convey it to the heads of their units. And by the time it reaches the average Microsoft worker, the ideas become distorted and the worker may not be willing to do what Bill Gates wants anyway. Uh, see, I still live in a period where Bill Gates runs Microsoft. It just shows you how old I am. Um, so so that's, you know, that's called the principal agent problem. That problem is big in militaries because the generals in the rear have a very hard time manipulating the soldiers in the front. They rely on discipline, they rely on communications, but war is chaos and war is foggy. 
And often soldiers will encounter situations that the general hasn't planned for or encounter opportunities that the general can't imagine, or the soldiers will lose their shit and do something stupid. Um, so, so militaries have a huge principal agent problem, both in, in issuing commands to the front lines and in conveying information back to the rear. Terror organizations have 10 times as big a principal agent problem because they have to do it all in secret. The Hamas leadership in Qatar can't just pick up the phone and call the head of the Hamas um, drone unit or rocket unit and say, you know, I want four rockets and no more than four. And I want you to drop them on, you know, two on Tel Aviv, uh, one on Beersheba and, and one on the city of Ashdod. Uh, everything has to be conveyed, you know, by carrier pigeon or by encrypted message or by courier because Israelis are listening at every stage. So I can imagine that Hamas command issued some vague set of instructions three months ago. And these instructions were misinterpreted, maybe. But as I said, increasing evidence suggests that that was not the case. That they knew exactly what was going to go down. So maybe option two is Hamas had this very ambitious plan, but they didn't expect to be quite so successful. That's certainly what happened with 9-11. Al-Qaeda wanted to blow up some airplanes and cause some damage in New York and in D.C., but they didn't expect the Twin Towers to come down. They didn't expect thousands of Americans to die. They didn't expect that it would lead to a ground invasion that would last 15 years. So they became victims of their own success. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe answer number three is a sort of Franz Fanon theory of purifying violence. So Hamas is an apocalyptic movement. They want the world to come to an end because they envision a very different world. It's not a world of states and it's not a world of governments. It's a world ruled by Islam, a very, very, very radical and in my mind, demented version of Islam. And and so you do everything you need to do to bring the world to an end. Just as, you know, if, if, if you've read about Christian cults who commit mass suicide or, you know, there was this Japanese cult, Om Shinrikyo, that was like, we will bring on the end of the world by poisoning the Tokyo subway system. It's demented, but, you know, maybe that'll end the universe. Or, you know, we'll steal a nuclear weapon and we'll try to blow up the world in some way. Um, that's answer number three. Neither of those answers is satisfying. They're not satisfying at all. Um, something went terribly wrong here. Uh, maybe Hamas thought that the Israelis were wimps and, you know, we're going to attack you and kidnap your children and kidnap your grandparents and torture your Holocaust survivors and you will give us whatever we want. Although note, by the way, that they haven't actually said what it is they want. Like, what do you want? I guess, I guess you want us to, you know, Israelis to put down their weapons and just walk into the Mediterranean Sea. Um, ain't going to happen. Have they made any demands in regards to the hostages? Uh, not that you and I know of. There might be back channels. Uh, there might be um, uh, maybe hints made before, during, after. I haven't heard them. Uh, there's a lot that's mystifying here, right? Like, where the hell's the Red Cross? You guys have one job. This is the only job we've, you know, People have been donating billions of dollars to the Red Cross, and, and your one job is when 
prisoners are taken, or in this case, they're not even hostages. They are, they are abductees, right? This isn't like a bank robber, you know, pointing a gun at a police officer and saying, you know, I want an airplane and a million dollars. These are, these are people um, forcibly taken from where they are during war in order to be held as, as human shields. It's the job of the Red Cross to, to reach out, make sure that they're healthy, allow them to communicate with their families as every terrorist in every Palest- in every Israeli jail and in every Palestinian jail, right? Palestinians are, Palestinian jails are also full of Hamas terrorists. Um, they're all allowed to communicate with the Red Cross. So where the hell is the Red Cross? Um, maybe there is some back-channel talk, but it's back-channel because both sides want to be able to deny that they're willing to cut a deal. I Try to know. save some face. I don't know. Um, I suspect that many of the hostages are dead. If Hamas wanted to send the message, we will take good care of these hostages because they are a valuable asset to be traded. They haven't sent that message to me. This is not how you take care of valuable hostages. You don't rape them along the way. Uh, You don't dismember them. You don't kill their family members in front of their eyes. And then upload the videos to Facebook and send it to other family members so that they can hear you laugh in the background. You don't do that stuff if, if you intend a good faith exchange of hostages. Even terrorists have rules that they abide by. Otherwise, nobody will ever take them seriously. Um, so, yeah, so this is all deeply puzzling. It's almost more terrifying if you fall into that that third potential aspect where they're just sowing chaos to sow chaos and capable of executing a plan like this and want to do it just to terrorize, just to feed into that, the world ending ethos. And in parallel, their supporters here in the United States who reject a two state solution, because what, what are you going to get instead? You really think the state of Israel is going to evaporate after 75 years? It's just going to go home. Have you, can you think of a single state that's ever disappeared off the map? ever since World War II. States don't do that. States don't disappear, right? That's one reason why most people in the world support states is because they have a really good odds of survival. Sometimes their borders change, sometimes their governments change, but states don't go anywhere. Um, so, so protesters here in the United States in a certain way are also chaotic, right? They, they, they okay. Yeah, that's an understatement. Right, you don't want a ceasefire. Okay, I get it. And instead, you want what? Give me a proposal. Suggest something realistic that you think is actually going to happen. Nope. No, just chaos. Well, it's hard to try to find any reasonable solution or try to diminish that chaos in some ways when we're in a state where the information you are looking at from credible sources, from credible people, could just be completely fake. I'm sure you saw the hospital bombing bonanza that went on. Where yes, it was which turned out hospi- neither to be a bombing nor a hospital. Yeah. It was a parking lot. Yep. And, you know, I was recording a podcast that day and the guests had come on and we were talking about it because it had just happened and we were both looking at it prior to talking. And then 24 hours later, you find out, oh, the narrative shifted from 500 people died, this hospital blew up to 
the hospital was destroyed, but only 100 to 150 people died to, oh, it was a parking lot, and it was yep. just a few cars that were burned. And you had credible news sources, credible loosely, you could say, running with the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, and and uh, the BBC has since apologized and retracted. The New York Times has not even retracted. They, they said, well, you have to understand, this is what we knew at the time, and we're still not entirely clear because the video can't pinpoint the location. Instead of just saying, you know, we're, we really, we're really sorry that we screwed up, and we, it won't happen again. So I'm not even sure they learned a lesson. Um, there is a flip side to this, which is very often you're seeing really good footage of something that really did happen, but because your sources have been so undermined, you're now denying reality. So it's both inventing a reality that didn't exist, denying a reality that did exist. This is in part why now the Israeli government, after four weeks of deliberation, is very carefully inviting journalists in very small groups to watch some of the footage that comes from Hamas body cams. Now, again, ask me, since when do terrorists carry body cams? Yeah, I didn't know that was happening. To document what they did I don't know. I don't get this. Um, but they've some of this stuff has already been leaked and was leaked to begin with, uh, including these these famous scenes that that terrorists filmed on their victims' cell phones so they could upload it and send it to family members of their victims. That's that's a level of uh, uh, demented sadism that I I can barely wrap my head around. But now journalists are watching. Uh, you know, hours of unedited footage of the actual attacks. And it's going to be pretty hard to say, you know, this was all doctored. This was all made up. Um, you know, there are some flat earthers out there. Uh, there are some people who continue to insist that COVID uh, never happened uh, and that Trump won the elections. I mean, people come in all shades and colors. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sure some people simply because. Uh, of cognitive dissonance. Some people will insist that this cannot possibly be true, just as people insisted during the Holocaust. Jews insisted during the Holocaust that it can't possibly be true that there is such a thing as a gas chamber and that, and that uh, you know, Jews are being um, uh, gassed to death by, by the tens of thousands, later turned out by the millions. Um, there will also be people who will deny this for sure, but um, a lot of people are going to feel very sheepish five years from now when the full picture emerges. Um, yeah. What do you make of these videos surfacing? I've seen some from New York where you have these Orthodox Jews coming out and denouncing Israel. Do you, would you attribute that to a sort these, of so these are ultra these are ultra orthodox Jews, uh, meaning they're not just orthodox, but they are a minority within a minority in Judaism um, that is religiously anti-Zionist, meaning they oppose the creation of the state of Israel, not because they are anti-Israeli, but because the state of Israel was created by humans, and they believe that the state of Israel should be created by God. And in fact, they see the creation of the state of Israel by humans as a form of, um, you know, being uppity, being um, being haughty, and you know, taking history into your own hands. 
when in fact the appropriate role and the safe role for Jews to play is to sort of be passive passengers of history. And when God decides that it's time for a state of Israel to come about, God will create it. Uh, in other words, you're, you're, in a way, you're thumbing your nose at God by taking Israel into your own hands. And, and in fact, Israel is a secular state, right? It's created by socialists. Uh, it, it is, uh, there's, a, there's a significant, not a complete, but a significant degree of separation of church and state in Israel. Very, very different from the United States, but not much different from England, for, for example. Um, so, so even if they were to envision an Israel, it wouldn't look like Israel would. It would look more like Iran, right? Uh, they have a nonviolent Hamas-like version of, of a state that is ruled by Jewish law only. Um, that explains an opposition that they've had to Israel since time immemorial. These were Jews that even in the Middle Ages refused to immigrate to Israel, refused to support Jewish attempts at emancipation because they thought it was dangerous. I understand all that. I don't understand the ease with which they join forces with Hamas. That seems, again, to stem from a place not of love, but of hate. Um, and that I hold against them. Do you think they're joining forces with the Palestinians, trying to separate from Hamas, or it is directly I can't Hamas? tell. I haven't looked carefully at their rhetoric. And presumably, they also dream that the current state of Israel will be dismantled. Um, and like Hamas, they have infinite patience. Maybe the state of Israel won't be dismantled in the next 10 years or even in the next 100 years, but we'll, we'll wait another 1,000 years and then it will be dismantled. Uh, even Orthodox Jews who often have an ambivalent relationship to Israel because Israel is a secular state, right? Israel allows pornography. Israel allows abortion. Israel allows gay couples to adopt children and, uh, and live as free citizens. Israel allows churches and mosques to operate. Uh, Israel, in many ways, it has more freedom of religion than many other Western countries. Um, uh, even Orthodox Jews who oppose Israel on those grounds stand by Israel today. Uh, and many in Israel who have refused to serve in the Israeli military have joined and put on uniform in the last three, four weeks because they understand that it's, that it's an extreme case and that these are times when, you know, the Jewish people are kind of banding together. So I'm not saying that these ultra-Orthodox Jews are somehow less Jewish. Not at all. If anything, perhaps they're even more Jewish. But they are not members of the greater American Jewish community. They very much created sort of a separate camp. It's as legitimate as any other camp. Um, the Jewish community in the United States speaks with one voice, and it is not the voice of the ultra-Orthodox and it's not the voice of Jewish Voice for Peace. Um, yeah, it's a it's a very different voice. Um, Nick, I have to go teach. Okay. Well, uh, Ron, thanks for doing this. I really had a great time talking. You're welcome. You. I, I I'm so glad we got to speak at length. I thought we were going to talk for like half an hour. No, this so was I'm, great. I'm, I'm very happy that we got to talk about everything. I hope you'll edit it down a little because otherwise, no, you'll... that was perfect. Um, do you want to plug anything where people can find you, where they can find your books, any talks or anything? Uh. No, not really. Okay.